what I tell my students is that, you know, when they publish someday and work with an editor, it'll be a breeze. Because if you spent two years or more workshopping your work creatively, where you've got 20 people telling you their opinions about it and what, you know, what they like about it, what they didn't like about it, that's far harder. And what they're doing in, in, in a creative writing class is far harder than working with an editor later, where you're just getting one person's opinion. And I, and I tell them that at this point, I'm like, if somebody has a piece of advice that will make this thing better, I'm taking it. I don't have any anxiety over influence or anything like that. You're listening to Parallel Careers, where writers who also teach share the big ideas and practical tips that they take into the classroom. My name is Wade Compton. I'm a writer and instructor of creative writing at Douglas College, where I'm also the chair. I teach all kinds of things because I'm a multi-generic writer. So I teach poetry, nonfiction, speculative fiction, and writing for children as well. I was an English teacher for years before I ever taught creative writing. And it was Betsy Warland who hired me to teach creative writing for the first time at the Writer's Studio at SFU Continuing Studies, which she created. And so she created this program that emphasized two things really, and it was mentorship and writing in community. And so that method that I learned from her is really the, the foundation of my thinking about creative writing to this day, even though now I teach in a more traditional credit side program. I still feel like trying to foster connections between the students so that there's lateral learning going on, creating a space in the workshop that's very supportive, but also rigorous, you know, and so balancing those two. And I mean, Betsy really looked at students holistically. It was not just their writing. It was also how they think about themselves as writers or how they learn to professionalize as writers and to take their work seriously and to also construct their lives in a way that they can continue to write. Because everything, when you're a creative writer, everything in the world is conspiring to keep you from writing. You know, there's just so many other things to do. And it, 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 it is a weird, solitary process. And so I think a lot of what she taught was really speaking to those things that hold people back from writing, whether it's insecurities or even just material things like where they write and stuff like that. So I talk about all of those things when I, when I teach. Jean has seen it. It's been there above those waves for a year and a half now. It's a natural miracle for the way it rose up out of the sea, burning and sending skyward a fountain of dry ash from the mouth of the inlet. But the island is nothing personal until the morning she is reading the sun and drinking tea, and Fletcher, her roommate, tosses an essay on top of the paper, blotting out its field of words with his. Look, he says, the pages are warm and smell like toner, freshly poured forth from Fletcher's printer. He sits down and stares at her. She realizes he's waiting for her to read it now. The essay is a solid block of geological jargon, and after two paragraphs, she stops and skims. When even her skimming wires, she looks up at him and asks, why are you showing me this? I want to go there, Fletcher says. Where? There. Jean looks at the essay. They've turned it into a protected zone, a national site for research, she points out. Nobody can go there but scientists. Indian land, he says. Brand new land, brand new colonization. Fletcher makes a gesture toward the kitchen window. He says, it's worth some kind of intervention, occupation. Throw a monkey wrench in the data collection. Get in on anti-colonial ground floor-like. 
She looks back at the essay. Pile of clastite brachia, opaque petrology, coignimbrite plumes. The language sits there and stares back. The language of dirt. A hundred fancy words for dirt. Flaming dirt rising up out of the dirt, spewing a mist of dirt all over the settled dirt. It is impossible for her not to think of the Bible. Impossible for her not to think of clay. Impossible for her not to think of a few huffs of breath and how that's us. Impossible for her not to think of how colonized her thinking is. Ground floor to glass ceiling. The Outer Harbor is a collection of linked short stories, sometimes loosely linked, sometimes more closely linked, set in a kind of alternate Vancouver that goes from 2001 to 2025. One event that really kind of runs through the background of all the stories or sometimes front and center is the um, emergence of a volcanic island in Vancouver's Outer Harbor. I've been thinking about a volcanic island like that for years and years because I as a kid I just I just loved reference books. I was a weird kid. Like I used to read the dictionary, atlases. I used to stare at my brother's atlas for hours and hours. I would read it like it was a book. And um my my dad saw that I was reading stuff. We didn't have very many books in the house. So we had the Bible, the dictionary, and atlas. And I would read those. And he sort of noticed that I was reading all the time. And so he got me uh Funk and Wagnall's encyclopedia set with like missing letters and stuff <laughs> from Salvation Army. And he's like, here you go if you want to read. I was like, okay. So I read it. And I think that left this impression on me, like this fascination with official documentation and reference books and things like that. And one of the books I stumbled across in the, my elementary school library was about Surtsey, which is the volcanic island uh, off the coast of Iceland. And I remember that just blew me away because I've been staring at the Atlas for all this time. And then I read this book that was just like, oh, new land can suddenly emerge. And so I had that in my mind for years and years. And I, I didn't think to put it in Vancouver until kind of probing around with these stories and playing around with them and, and, just, and thinking of space and the spatial turn in academia and colonialism. And then reading Pauline Johnson's story, The Lost Island as well, her, her version of, of Chief Joe Capilano's telling of the legend of the, the Squamish legend of the Lost Island. They all seem to just converge. That can be the central trope of this book. So the island goes through several phases. So at the beginning, it's a it's looked at purely ecologically because which is the same with Surtsey Island to this day. That's the first jurisdiction because scientists look at it as well. Here's a, an opportunity to study how a new piece of land gathers life, and so they don't want to contaminate it. So they they go there, but they're very very careful, trying not to bring seeds or whatever. But then also within days of it erupting, French journalists showed up on the island. They just went there and were tromping all over it and put a French flag and claimed it for France in a kind of jokey way that Iceland did not take as a joke at all. So there's that too. So it's kind of a stunt. And that, that was that's what the um, characters in the book do. But an indigenous a group of indigenous activists do that instead. And then it, it gets privatized at a certain point and sold off and becomes a, a condo project. And then um, that fails. We don't really see it, but it, there's an implication that it failed at some point. Then the state buys it and uses it to house refugee migrants who show up. There's a kind of collage effect in the book because I, I like disrupting the narrative with a kind of cutaways to different things. So there are maps, there are political posters, there's a podcast transcription. So there's diff these different registers of discourse and image as well. You as the reader get 
bombarded with all of these different ways of seeing this city through this time. But to me, that's closer to human experience than, than is the conceit of the conventional narrative. That's why it's not a novel. It's not this whole experience from the point of view of one discrete individual subject position. I think it does go back to me reading the way I learned to read as a kid and reading weird bits of referential information. English has just one word to describe the experience in which a person who is of one race is seen as being of a different race. From the United States, we get the word passing, as in, he has black ancestry, but he can pass for white. You can hear in the term echoes of the repressive history that created it. Yet passing is used pervasively and expansively because there is no other word specifically for this phenomenon. But it's a troubling term. Passing forces a syntax in which the person looking is erased, while the person seen is made the subject of the sentence. Because if I'm standing in line at the bank and you decide I am white when I'm actually half black, this language forces us to say that in this situation, I passed for white, so I am the subject of the sentence. And you, the viewer, are not there in the sentence at all. It disappears your act of looking. In fact, it erases you entirely from the wording. But this is absurd. If a viewer is deciding what race they think a person looks like, then the viewer should own the verb. This is why in my 2010 essay, Phoneticizing versus Passing, I coined the term phoneticize, borrowing from a biological classification method to replace passing in such situations. If you see me in line at the bank and decide I'm white, when I'm actually half black, then you are phoneticizing me as white. It's something you are doing. We can and should reserve the word passing for those cases when a racially ambiguous person actively chooses to lie about their identity. In that sense, the word passing still has a use. But in situations where it is the viewer who is assuming things about those they examine, then that viewer should own the action. After Canaan is a collection of essays that I wrote over about a 10-year period, but was published now 12 years ago. The subtitle is Essays on Race, Writing, and Region. And that's what it is. It's pretty diverse. So it's some of it's criticism, some of it's personal narrative, some of it's theory. I am compelled to know about Black history here and Black culture here and, and individuals who played a role in that. It's always been really important to me. Hogan's Alley is the center of Vancouver's old Black community. And so it was down near Main Street. And it was there because it was close to the train station. And kind of the first big significant Black population of Vancouver were porters, Black porters and their families. And I think the porters' quarters, which was at Hogan's Alley, right next to the train station, was the first Black site in that neighborhood that kind of grew over the years. That's where the Black community had a church and had um, a bunch of restaurants and some nightclubs a bit later. So it was a center of, of Black culture and presence there. And then also it's the exact site of where the city launched its urban renewal plans and eventually demolished the area for um, a planned freeway that never actually got built. But the first stage of it got built right exactly on top of Hogan's Alley. And it's absolutely, utterly no coincidence. They were following the American model. It's what American planners did in the States, which was we need a freeway connecting the suburbs to the city in the 50s. We'll put it through the community we can bully most easily, which is the Black community. But they did it late in Vancouver. They did it about 
10, 15 years later than they did in the States. And so they did it at a time when people were a bit more empowered and the project was stopped before the whole thing was completed. But by then the planning had already kind of pushed the black community out. And so that's the moment, that's when people come to Vancouver and they say, where's the black neighborhood? And you know, that's the reason why there isn't one. A really devastating example of institutionalized racism. I mean, I think, um, you know, I have respect for what conventional historians do. But my, my role is different, I guess, because I'm, I am more interested in the kind of cultural temperature of Black Vancouver over the years and sort of how things were different then, how urban renewal changed us as a community. And then what, what we who were born after that era, how we've dealt with this place. And part of that is trying to connect back to what was lost. Like there, there, were, there were community ties that existed back then that were just ripped apart. And this is for a Black community where severance from the past is the central trauma of our culture, really, right? So to have that done again is, is both devastating and also people kind of expect it in a way. The hunger for history is fascinating because I see that. I felt that. And I still see that in younger Black folks, particularly among creatives in the city. I think the good thing about writing is books last. And I, I think what I want to do is to keep some of those connections going so that people don't feel like they're starting all over again from zero every time they ask the question, what Black people were here before me? Why is my experience like this? Having a writing buddy is actually more valuable than having a mentor in the long run, you know, because mentors come and go, they're in your life for a little while and then they're gone. But a writing buddy can be somebody that's there for years and years. And even if all they do is ask you, what are you working on? That question prompts you to somebody's listening, somebody cares and they want to know what I'm doing, or there's somebody that I can have a discussion. Like some one of my, I mentioned Chris Turnbull, you know, we were in the 90s. This was what, the late 90s, we were hanging out in the same kind of writing, you know, loose write, writing group. And I remember back then she was talking about haptics and doing kind of tactile, tactile work that blurred between writing and kind of sculpture, that kind of thing. And uh, I've just started doing that type of thing myself in recent years, like in the last two years. And so I picked up that dialogue from 20 years ago with her and just messaged her and said, you know, you're doing those haptics. Tell me more about that. What, are you still doing that? What you, that's 20 years, you know? So having writing buddies is just invaluable. It's absolutely invaluable. My dad was really handy. My dad and my brother, they picked up all the, the handy, you know, the, the handy side of the family, make things and stuff. And I was always pretty useless at that. Just bookish, right? And read things and write things. But my dad, I just, I was fascinated by the way my dad would take stuff apart. He would never read instruction manuals for anything. He would just figure it out by manipulating things. And he would, if the radio was broken, he'd take it apart and fix it somehow. And he just seemed to know how to do this. I remember when personal computers came along and my dad started buying them at yard sales. He loved yard sales. And, and then, and he was working on it. I remember thinking like, oh no, you met your match now. Like you can't. Computers are not just a thing you can take apart and then know how computers work. It's different, right? Well, I was wrong because within a few years, it took him a little longer, but within a few years, he became the, the, the PC guru of the extended family. He was the guy who would come to fix, you know, fix their problems. He became a computer guy. It was a while after him being gone that I started playing with making things and wanting to, to try it out. 
just build stuff, basic things, crates and boxes and stuff like that. And then it's become more creative. I, I, I deliberately went in one direction. I realized at a certain point to be an actual woodworker, it's all about precision. And I was trying to do that at first. And I realized like, no, that's not what I wanted. I wanted to make stuff. I want to slap things together. It doesn't have to look perfect. In fact, I don't really want it to. I want it to be more like a punk, punk rock approach to woodworking. And that I'm not going to measure. I'm going to just get it to hold together and to do the and to say the thing that I want to say. And then I thought, well, what about you know my own stories? Like, what about moving you know, something from story into object form creatively? Mostly what I've done are boxes, haptics that are based on the Lost Island. And so they have elements from the story in them, like dandelion seeds and sea glass and uh, maps and sand placed in bottles inside boxes. I just love the idea of opening them. I, I like making stuff that is movable, that's tactile, that people have to manipulate to see the whole thing. Language is neural. Sing, sing, singularly, like a pearl on a string. Puppet fish at the end, a hand crab lingering under drowned spokes of sun. The liquid noceums, the parachutes of skin lit, the horse fish pressed to gangs, to schools. Choppy waters don't stare back, dorsal, fish, heads up to the surf, face feeding, believing the rain, feeding on, the rain on, the surface, of the slow-moving river, mouth to the ocean, to let in too much, too good to be true. The oysters in their rows, and rows and rows upon rows of tears, and tears upon tears upon our good graces. We have taken upon ourselves the task of shelving, the oysters in their rows, upon rows, upon rows, upon rows, upon we, who have taken as our task the killing of starfish on behalf of the oyster's pearls. To Roy Cayuca, Levi and I ate rectangular pearls. In Langley, we'd slid milk bottles over branches, sheathed the buds, let the fruit inflate what was, the sap where it will run, up into even the sun which spoke into the growth of these seed casings, making messages to the sun through Messages refracting the twig through years you could see into, nevertheless. I think all my writing is an example of how the more particular you are in writing about your experience, the more um, a wider variety of people will connect with it. You know, when I wrote my first book, I was writing about the Black experience in BC, first Black pioneers to British Columbia in the 19th century, and then my own mixed race experience. You know, in a place like BC, where Black people are 1% of the population, you wouldn't think there'd be an audience for that book, really, right? Like, or that it would be small. But I remember being, the first time I realized, um, oh, it doesn't work like that, was uh, it was actually at the BC Book Prize. That book was nominated for a BC Book Prize. And at the event, uh, a white woman who must have been 20 years older than me, who just took me aside and told me how much she loved the book. And it was the first moment where I thought, oh, wow, like, you know, it's reaching other people that don't have that experience in common. And then I started listening for that and the ways that people were receiving it. And part of it was what I figured out later was that 
I'd originally thought that book was about the Black pioneers, or as I just put it, about the Black experience. But really, it wasn't. The reason why that book worked, actually, is partway through it, I changed tacks, and I was writing more about why the Black pioneers were important to me. I think actually looking back on it, that's really what the book is about. It's an examination of why you need grounding if you're from a minority position or where the dominant society doesn't reflect back your experience. And that's what a lot of people connected with across diverse backgrounds. And another experience was of talking to the poet Jordan Scott. And Jordan Scott was particularly interested in, in my first book formally because I was writing at that time, I was listening to a lot of hip hop. You know, I was trying to write lyric poems that imitated the sound of DJ scratching, which is like halting, stop, start, kind of breaking the words on the syllable. Now, Jordan Scott has a stutter, right? So he's had a lifelong stutter. And at that time, he was thinking about the way that the lyric, the traditional lyric and a sentence-based lyric or the way the breath line does not suit his way of speaking, right? His natural way of speaking is at odds with that ableist kind of um, standard. And he said to me that he was inspired partly by what I was doing because I was chopping up the voice. Now, for totally different reasons, those things, I could never have anticipated him as a reader or being affirmed that way. I could never have guessed that. That's the magic of literature is when it's out there, it becomes for other people and they adopt it and take it on for their own needs. You just never know how people are going to receive your work or how it's going to be useful to them. That can be a really wonderful thing. I sometimes teach speculative fiction to our second year students. I do this one exercise with them that it's, it's always a lot of fun. And it's, it comes from Ursula Le Guin. She's also someone who loves reference books. And I believe her father was an anthropologist. And so she was fascinated by maps and descriptions of peoples you know, and cultures from around the world. And so she was just imagining what she wanted to write a fantasy book, but she was trying to imagine where it would be. And so she created an archipelago world. And so she was thinking about how geography is the base to the superstructure of culture in a lot of ways. And so, but just the idea that she sat down without many ideas and first was just developing where would these people live? What does this world look like? And just drew, you know, and drew a map. So that's what I get my students to do. So first I show them a bunch of fantasy maps from different books, like um, The Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum drew a map of where Oz is which is so weird because it's in the Midwest, you know, it's not really a magical land. It's, that's why she can get there by cyclone is because it's really just kind of over there. It's like, you know, at the edge of Kansas or something like that. And, and then of course, Tolkien. And then somebody did, did a map of the Handmaid's Tale, her North America of the Handmaid's Tale. And then also, you know, in the Outer Harbor, I have those maps of the Outer Harbor, but also of the condos. Like I find the floor plans are a type of map. So I suggest that there are really a lot of different ways of thinking about space, maybe first, right? And so I get them to do that and give them a bunch of blank pieces of paper and pencils and say, you know, before thinking really about story necessarily, start, see if you could start with the map and a space, think about a space. And uh, in whatever way you want to interpret that, it can be a f anything from a floor plan, you know, all the way up to a world uh, or solar system, whatever you want to do, and get them to, to draw that. And I'm always amazed because I am such a terrible illustrator that I'm always amazed that, that they throw themselves into it. They really, they really do it and spend a bunch of time. And it's, it's just fascinating to see that you can go from there to a story. You can go from there to characters. 
settings, characters, and then some kind of conflict. And, uh, and then you've got a piece of fiction brewing. So that's, a, that's an assignment that I do that's always a lot of fun. You've been listening to Parallel Careers, which is produced by myself, Claire Tayson, in partnership with the New Quarterly Literary Magazine. Aaron McIndoe Sproul is our technical producer and story editor. Financial and in-kind support was provided by the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund, St. Jerome's University, and the Government of Canada. The music you heard on this episode was composed by Amadeo Ventura. You can hear more of his music at amadeoventura.weebly.com. Visit tnq.ca slash parallel for more information on Wade's work, including his story collection, The Outer Harbour. There you can also listen to outtakes from this episode and check out more teaching and writing tips. Thanks for listening.